you may not know this, but when I was in high school, I was a basketball player. And I was actually a pretty good one. I played, played varsity basketball all my high school years. And um, the team that I was on was actually a rather successful team. By the time I graduated, we had actually done some things that no other team in the history of the school had done, including a, you know, lived in Canada, so a provincial championship. It was a pretty big deal. And um, I was the captain of that team that won the championship along with another guy. And at the end of the season, after we won the championship and everything was done of the course of the basketball season, um, we actually were asked um, by some local, a new local newspaper to be a part of a league all-star game. Now, when you get a, a request like that, like seriously, like, oh, all-star, hmm. pretty awesome. I'm pretty great. I'm one of the best players in the league. Me and the other guy that was the captain on our team, who was my best friend and just an exceptional basketball player. He was amazing. Um, we were both asked to be a part of this All-Star game. So we go to this All-Star game. Now in my high school that I went to, we never played in front of more than 50 people. Just ever. Just no one ever came to our games. But at this particular All-Star game, there were over 500 people there. And I'd never played in front of that many people before. And um, uh, so you go into this game and you're, you're sort of full of yourself because I'm an all-star and I'm surrounded by other great players and we're all the best players. And of course, we played against each other. So we're sort of goofing around and, and laughing. And during warm-ups, some of these guys are going up to dunk because you can do that in a non-sanctioned game that wasn't a league game. So they're dunking. And, and I actually, uh, I dunked during warm-ups, because I could actually jump at one point in my life. Now, I can't do like more than the tiptoes type of jump. Um, but at one point, I could, and, and so I went up and, and, and dunked it, and, and you're like, you're walking on it. This is awesome. We're, I'm great. And then the game starts. I'm point guard. I got some people on my team who are really good, and so since I'm the point guard, I just feed them. You know, just pass, assist, back, forth. And the guy on my team who had been on my team, my best friend, he's draining them, like 20 plus points, I think, in the first half, including I, I fed him a, a pass on a fast break and he, and he two-handed dunked it in the game. It was awesome. It was like one of those things where you're like, yeah, you got a little swagger going on, All right? And I took two shots over the course of the game to that point. I missed both of them. I was a three-point shooter if I was going to do anything, and I missed both my three-pointers. But then I took the ball in, going on a drive, and I put the ball up. It goes in, and I'm fouled. So I got one foul shot, and one. And so I go up to the foul line, and if you know any of them foul shots, you get players lined up on either side, one team, the other team, one team, the other team. And the referee is on the end. The other referee is here. They pass the ball to the other referee. Referee hands you the ball, and you take your shot. I had my routine down. Five dribbles, set, middle of, the, uh, middle of the basket, and shoot it. I don't know what happened. There was a, it was a clear you know, fiberglass or whatever, the, the, the clear glass blackboard, a backboard, and there were just fans all over the place in the back. I don't know what happened, but I'm looking at all these people, and I'm just like, oh, don't screw up. Don't screw up. And I've lost track of my bounces by this point. I don't even know how many done. Seven? Ten? I'm out of my routine. I don't know what I'm doing. 
set. Now, I don't know what happened between that ball leaving my hand and getting to where it went. I want to assert that it was demonic influence. That Satan sent a demon who grabbed the ball, slowed it down, and dropped it like a foot before the rim. It was an air ball on a foul shot. Chris Gilbert's over there laughing his head off. He knows how ridiculous that is. You airball a foul shot? Like, that's the worst thing ever. I airballed a foul shot in front of 500 fans at an all-star game. All of a sudden, I wasn't like this no more, was I? Humility. I totally, all this success was like, oh, I'm horrible. This is ridiculous. And of course, all these guys are laughing at me. And what does the crowd do? What does the crowd do? Airball. Airball. Like, I literally want to go outside and crawl, get in my car and drive home. That pinnacle of success down to the, you know, the, the, the depths of failure and humility. Our people this morning in our text actually are feeling a little bit of the swagger. They're feeling it. They're two disciples, James and John. And James and John have a special place in the whole sort of kaleidoscope of faith. First of all, remember, they're part of the twelve. So in all the Jews of Galilee, all the Jews in Nazareth, all the Jews of that area, Jesus chose 12, and he chose these two brothers. And he says, James, come follow me. John, come follow me. And so you get these two brothers who are a, a part of the disciples, so that's exclusive. They got some reason to swagger, but then something even better happens. They become part of the three. See, we see the disciples as 12, but then there's three. And we see the three, remember last week's message on the transfiguration, who was present? It was Peter, James, and John. So they're part of even the more exclusive group, the close group to Jesus, the ones who are most intimate, the ones who are most in Jesus' confidence and, and people that he does special teaching with. And out of that, we read chapter 10, verse 35, and it says this. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. And they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. Wow, these guys are feeling their oats, aren't they? I mean, there is, there is a level in which we hear them say that to Jesus, and we're like, like seriously, uh, we could describe it a couple different ways, like selfishness, certainly pride, and arrogance, but we, and we sort of wonder, where does this come from? Well, it's interesting, because if you turn over in your Bible to chapter 20 of Matthew, what are you going to read there? You're going to read the same story, except there's one other addition. It's James and John, but they're not asking the question, who is? Their mom. Their mom's asking the question. So these guys are getting their arrogance a little honestly, aren't they? Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. 
So the story in Matthew 20 is a little different, but it's the same point. We get a group of people here, two people and their mom, who are sitting in this place of saying, we're pretty good, and because we're pretty good, we want to get the special place. And what's interesting is that this is not the first time the conversation has happened. Look back in chapter 9 of Mark, verses 33 and 34. What do you read there? You read, they came to Capernaum. Jesus, when he was in the house, he asked them after their travels, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had been arguing about who was the greatest. So this is not just a James and John conversation. This is a a full disciple group, the whole 12, getting into it going, no, I'm better than you. No, I'm greater than you. No, I do miracles cooler than you. No, I've fed more people. No, I've cast out more demons. Which, of course, to us sounds absolutely ludicrous, right? Except for the fact that we sort of live into that every day, don't we? I got this car. (laughs) I got this house. I got a 55-inch TV. I got a 65-inch TV. I've got this. I got that. I'm successful at this. I can do that. I make my bread at home from scratch. There is any number of things that we can live into that sounds almost the exact same of what James and John are having in their conversation. But we see it's understandable It's understandable for James and John to be in that place. Why? Because they got the preferential treatment. Remember, they got to go up on the mountain. There's only one other person besides these two who ever saw transfigured Jesus with Moses and Elijah on the planet. So you would at best think, okay, of those three, two of them got to sit, one at the right, one at the left. Let us be us, the brothers. It's understandable that they would think that. And sometimes it's understandable in our lives that we would think of our place in God's kingdom. We got things pretty good. We have blessings in our lives, don't we? So many good things. So many ways in which God has shown his love for us and his blessings for us. And we think, boy, we're we're pretty good. But as we continue reading, we see that Jesus looks at this whole thing very differently than they do. But the boys, they still have some stuff to learn. Verse 38. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? And then they give this nice answer. We can. You can almost hear her going, yep, we can. No problem. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Jesus is reminding them, that's not up to him, that's up to the Father. But remember what it is that they're saying yes to. They've just said that they can drink the cup, right? They've just said that they can be baptized with the baptism of Jesus. But how does Jesus feel about the cup that he has to drink? 
Mark chapter 14, verse 36. Turn over just a couple pages. And what does he say there? Mark chapter 14, verse 36. Jesus has this happen. He's in the garden of Gethsemane. He's getting ready to pray. He goes a little farther. He fell to the ground. Prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. He's saying to the Father, put time ahead. Quickly, let's be done with this. I need to be over this and past this. And then he says this, Abba. Abba is simply a word of intimacy. He's asking with all of his heart. It's like he's saying, Daddy, Daddy, Father. He said, Everything is possible for you. Take what? This cup. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will be, your will be done. So here's James and John. Yes, we can. No problem. Give me the cup. And Jesus is saying, I am the son of God, and I don't want this cup. Jesus is inviting James and John into a much more difficult thing than they can ever imagine. He's inviting them into something that is much more painful, much more challenging, much more difficult than they could possibly know. And what's striking is that they do exactly that. They drink the cup. They're baptized with the baptism. Just read the book of Acts, read church history. You find out the disciples had a tough go of it, didn't they? Almost all of them imprisoned. Almost all of them at one point or another were tortured. They were certainly persecuted. They were laughed at, yelled at, screamed at, rejected. And more than a couple of them died some pretty hideous deaths, including a crucifixion upside down. Could you possibly imagine? That's what the cup is. And that's what Jesus invites believers into, and that creates a dichotomy, right? It creates a challenge. This past week, uh, Monday and Tuesday, Nick, myself, Alex, and Mario uh, went to a prayer conference. And at that prayer conference, we were hearing a little bit of the story of two missionaries who are in, actually one of them is a missionary, one of them is a citizen of and has lived in Egypt. Drawing of the leading of God. They feel God moving them forward in faith and understanding and their courage and they rejoice constantly and experience the joy of, of experiencing the presence and the power of God in their lives as they go out into a dark and broken Muslim world to share the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then they begin to talk about the difficulty. Here's where the difficulty comes. And that is, as a missionary to a Muslim community, you are often asking people not just to believe in Jesus. Understand this. They're not just calling them to believe in Jesus. They're also asking them to be willing to die. Because if you are the first Muslim in a family to leave the Muslim faith and commit to Jesus Christ, it is possible that in your family, as a, a, a person who has left Islam, that they will choose to kill you because you are now an infidel. It's possible. And in fact, in Cairo, these missionaries tell the stories that happens. And it's not unusual. 
It's not unusual for people who are Christians to be beaten. It is not unusual for these guys as missionaries to have their families spat upon, for to have their homes vandalized, for them to, to be at the very least ridiculed in public and made fun of by people they walk by on the street. And you see the dichotomy. Because on the one hand, you have them speaking of the joy of the Lord, right? We rejoice in the power of God and the courage that he has given us to speak of the truth of the gospel. And yet in the midst of it all, you get all the suffering. That's what Christ is calling us to. And we actually see it play out. Turn back in your Bibles. Verse 41. And it says this. Let me make sure I got it here. Oh, my Bible flipped over a little couple pages. I'll get there. Verse 40, 41. When the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Does anyone else read that and think to themselves, why were they indignant? Were they saying to themselves, oh, James and John, that's horrible that you should ask that? Or were they saying, oh, James and John, it's horrible that you should ask that, not for me. Like, I want that. That's what I want. I should have asked that of Jesus, and I'm ticked off that you asked him first. It's interesting that they, they're indignant. But then Jesus responds to it, and he's going to impact their thinking a little bit. And he called them together, and he said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentile lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be the first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to serve, to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. What's interesting about the Gospel of Mark is that Mark does the best job of all the Gospels, of showing how hard-headed, stubborn, and then how much the disciples don't get it. And we see that here. Because James and John are in essence saying, make us great. And Jesus is saying to them, you have no idea. You're being fools. You're being ridiculous. Here's what the great reversal of the kingdom of God is. You think that the Gentile rulers are something that you aspire to. Because when Gentile rulers speak, everyone underneath them listens. And it sounds like that's what you want from me. You want to be on my right and my left. You think that this is some sort of political power. That it's going to be influence in Jerusalem. Herod's going to go away. I'm going to be king. You're going to be my closest advisors. But you don't get it. Because that's not what I'm doing. I'm not doing that sort of political kingdom. It's not some sort of rule where your success is based on your position. Actually, it is based on your position. It's just a different one than you expect. It's being last. It's being a servant. We, we have those two words, servant, but then we also have what? What's the other one? Slave. 
Now, yeah, it's a different word of slavery than it is in the history of this country over the last 250 years, but it is still a slavery of submission where you say, there is a master and I am willing to do whatever the master says. And you'll notice that it just doesn't, it doesn't just say that you will be a servant and a slave of God. Because in many ways, that would be easy, right? Absolutely. You're my master, Lord. You, you, you're in charge and I'll do whatever you want me to do. It says you will be a servant of who? All. A slave of all. It means that the person who is greatest in the kingdom of God puts everyone else before themselves. Sign me up. <laughs> Sound easy, doesn't it? Think about how it works in marriage. How many of you got that whole servanthood thing figured out perfectly yet? And that is exactly what we're called to. We are called to put our spouse before ourselves in all things. Kristen, is, I am a servant to Kristen. I am a slave to Kristen. That's what we're hearing here. We're here elsewhere in the text. But that's not all. Because I have Katie and Cameron and Troy. Now, as a father, I'm called to be a servant or a slave to my children, to put them before myself. And if I could do that and live into that, then I will be the greatest. Except it's not done there. Because I have my mom and my dad and my in-laws and my brothers and my sisters and my in-laws, outlaws, and second cousins twice removed. And all of them I'm called to serve and be a slave to. And then I come to the office. I get a break, right? No, because I'm called to be a servant and a slave to Rachel and Mario and Nick and Will. Will, oh boy. That's that, then I'm done, right? I can go back to my house and just relax if no one's home. No, because I'm called to be a servant and a slave to my neighbor. Well, then send me to the store. I'll be fine there. No. Want to sign up for the Christian life and be successful at it? Ready for the hardest thing that you and I have ever done? And that's exactly what we're called to. We're called to submit. We're called to be servants. We're called to be slaves. And of course, that goes against every bit of our wiring. It goes against all that this world has told us. I am here in this world to get what I can get while the getting is good. I am here in this world for myself because I can have an agenda. Now, yes, I am, I am not called to allow someone to govern my life except if it is Jesus. But it does mean that I am willing to put others before myself in a whole lot of ways that I certainly know I am unwilling to do. And you know why I'm unwilling to do it? Because it's really hard. See, I, I actually, I, because of my role, because of my position, I'm asked to do this regularly. And I actually, I, I do like it. And I, in fact, I even love it. And there's huge blessings in that. I regularly have people text me or call me or reach out to me. And they're looking for something for me. They're looking for encouragement or prayer or support. They're looking for me to help them um, be better. If it's just, please, 
pastor, call people to pray for this or get the word out that this is going on so that there can be help offered. And, and I, it's a privilege when my phone buzzes or when my phone rings and I get to enter into some of the challenging things of life that you walk through, it, it, it truly is a great blessing. But you know what else it does? It hurts. I, I get that email from Courtney about her father-in-law and my heart breaks. Marlene sits in my office and shares with me what's going on with stage two breast cancer in both breasts. And I cry. And I'm not asking you to feel sorry for me or whatever because it is a huge blessing. But it's the difficulty of entering into serving others and being a slave to others and putting others before yourself and trying to bless others with everything that you have and all that you are. When you enter into that, there is pain involved and you get scars. And many of us have them. And we sit there and we can name them. This thing that happened, this divorce, this broken relationship, this abuse, this thing where I put somebody in front of myself, where I tried to serve, where I tried to love, where I tried to encourage it, and it hurt me. And it caused a scar. And I look at some of the best Christians that I know. And they're the ones that cry the most because they do this the best. They serve others. And when you serve others, you open your heart up to what's going on in their lives. And you say, Lord, I'm going to make you greater than me. And I'm going to make others greater than myself. So I'm going to enter into this. And when I enter into this, it means that I put myself at risk for rejection or pain or hurt. But I'm going to do it because I'm going to do it in obedience to you. And then the pain comes. Ross, would you stand up for a minute and just turn around? That shirt is perfect. That shirt is perfect. We're living into that. He is greater than me. And when he is greater than me, and he calls me then to make all others greater than me, then I enter into that risk of pain. And I can get scars, but you know what? Remember this. Jesus had scars. Jesus had scars. He had one here. He had one here. He had one on either foot or in his leg, depending on where it all happened. He had one on his side. And he probably had a bunch of scratches right around here. And the reason he had those scars, because in that moment, when he did the greatest thing that could ever be done for all humanity in all times and in all places, the most powerful, successful thing that could ever be done in the history of the world, it caused him pain because he put others before himself. And now he says, I did it. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, now you go and do likewise. For us to live into that. 
for us to live into that dichotomy where we live in the joy of the Lord, Lord, but we also risk the pain of the suffering. Where we, where we seek out to live in the victorious Christian life with the Holy Spirit leading us in all that we are and all that we do at the same time realizing that we as a servant and a slave to others are willing to put everyone before ourselves. It's a scary thought. It's a, what did, what did uh, Nate say this morning? It's a peculiar a strange, unique idea for us as followers of Christ. And yet, what is the promise? When we do that, that's when we're the greatest. That's when we're successful. That's when we're exactly who Christ made us to be. Would you pray with me? Living God, hope of the world in Jesus Christ, you call us to be a servant and a slave. You call us to give up ourselves, our agendas. You call us to submit ourselves to another. And that is risky. You call us to submit ourselves to our spouses, to our children, to our parents, to our families to each other here, to our co-workers, to our neighbors. And Lord, when we think and consider what that really means, we certainly know how difficult that is. Because it means that there's less of us and more of you. And that work, Lord, less of us, more of you, is not something that happens easily. We pray, Lord Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit, that you are the one who does that work in us. Lord, break us of ourselves. Break the white knuckles that we have a hold of our own lives and open up our fists so that we might be willing to receive the great blessings from you when we serve and are a slave to others and to you. Father, may we not get caught up in the world's ideals or ideas about what is great, what is successful, what is the dreams, and what is the goals that we should have. Instead, Lord, may we simply understand that as we submit to you, and as we love others above ourselves, Lord, that's the greatest. And Lord, we want truly to be great, not in our own eyes or in the world's, but in yours. We pray these things all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.